Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Psalm 27. Before we read that, I just have a couple of opening uh, comments about this psalm. Um, If I was going to give this morning a title, I would say that the title for this sermon is Becoming a People of the One Thing. Becoming a People of the One Thing. Of the one thing. I, the longer that I pastor, and I've been a pastor now since, in some shape or form, since I was 19, so 25 years, uh, by vocationally and full time. And the longer that I am a pastor, I, I realize that really what our community and our culture, our families, our children, our friends, our co-workers need more than anything else is for the church to be a people of the one thing, that you come to church, I hope, in order to seek out uh, God himself, that you come to church not for just the benefits that church give, and we've also, we've all seen the benefit of church and felt the benefit of being in a community, and even in the middle of the summer when our community shrinks substantially on a Sunday morning, that church still happens in the week and in different places throughout, but I have a a sense and I have a belief that really what you want in me as a pastor and what you want in your leaders is somebody who really is captivated by uh, by God himself, that there's something otherworldly about a Christian, or at least there should be, Uh, and our community and culture need people of the one thing. So my question to start us off this morning as I try and give this incredible passage justice is, is, is really wrapped up in a, in a question, a big question I'm going to try and put into a sentence uh, in, a, in just a second. But essentially the question is this, I wonder whether on a day-to-day basis, whether we dwell, whether we live in, whether we are constantly sensing and cognizant of God's presence and grace, or whether our Christianity has become something that we know is real and we really appreciate it and we we couldn't fathom life without our faith, but when I read the scriptures and I read Psalms like we're about to now, I sense a, and I don't want to use this word, uh, I couldn't think of a better word, but another level. It's, another, it's a, a deeper sense of God's presence and grace on a daily basis. Not just a, a, a belief, not just a knowledge, but a tangible, um, captivated, like you just, it's hard for me to put in words, which is unusual for me, you know. Like, it, you just can't fathom life without God's presence and grace on a daily basis. So that God doesn't just become something that we have to make an effort to remember in the day, but He is constantly on our mind. We are a people of the one thing. Jonathan Edwards, who is one of my favorite uh, theologians, and uh, you kind of have to buckle yourself up when you read Jonathan Edwards because it's, it's the sort of thing you have to read uh, one paragraph, three, four, five, six, seven times because to really understand what he's getting at. And so I want to paraphrase something that he describes uh, so much better than me uh, about this being captivated on a daily basis by God's grace and presence. He likened it to, and he used the metaphor of honey. He says, you can, you, you can know that honey is sweet, 
You can talk about how honey is sweet. You can marvel at the beauty of honey. You can, you can uh, marvel at how wonderfully made it is and how bees make honey. And you can, you can talk, we can sing about it, you can believe that it is sweet. But until you have actually tasted that honey, you're actually only just taking a fragment of what that honey was created for. Honey was meant to be tasted. And he said exactly the same thing when it comes to a belief in God, that God is to be tasted, God is to be sensed, God is to be felt. It's an emotional, experiential, guiding sense that we have in our life that grounds us and captivates us. And yet, friends, this is one of my largest angsts and sometimes frustration, if I am completely honest, is I feel like the church, not Willow Park Church South in particular, but the church in Christendom has perhaps lost some of the sense of the honey, some of the taste. Do you think that we get to a place perhaps where we don't sense him anymore? That we only talk about him? That we marvel at his creation and we love him Deeply, We love to sing about Jesus, but do we actually feel it every day? Does it compel us? Does it captivate us? Does it ground us? Is it just, it's the first thing we want to talk about. It's the first thing that we, we want to think about. We want to sing about it in our cars. We don't have even interested in any other distraction. That even our family and our jobs and our other activities, all God-given, are there so that we can make much of Him in the midst of all those things because we have tasted something incredible. See, this community needs Christians who are filled with a sense of God's grace and presence. That's what this city needs, is, a, is an army who are determined and unapologetic about their faith, going into the different places that God has allowed us influence in to actually speak truth lovingly and gently and kindly. And we saw evidence of that this week. The way that Willow Park Church South served our local community was beautiful. And it was because of the sense of God's grace and presence. Uh, and, And we need more of that as a church. We need to be a people of the one thing. It's what our children need. Our children do not need activity and, and, and education and, and, and sports nearly as much as a mum and dad who are captivated by the sense of God's presence and grace. That's the most important thing. All those other things that are beautiful to allow our children to enjoy become richer when they are looked at through the lens of God's grace and presence. It's what our workplaces needs. It's what our city needs. It's what our family needs as a people of the one thing. And I have a sense that this is what this church should be. That's my prayer. My prayer is that Willow Park Church, Willow Park Church South, will be a place of the people of the one thing. And so I shared something with the South leadership team a couple of weeks ago. If you'd asked me six years ago what my dream would be for this church, I would have said... Maybe a community of five or six hundred people who are gathering a couple, three services on a Sunday and doing all the wonderful things that all that can mean. And you know what? I, I would take that. I'm very happy with that. But what I actually shared was I would rather 200 people of the one thing 
than thousands who are distracted by everything else and just do church as an activity. Because I have a sense that we will get judged one day on whether we are a church of the one thing more than we are a church of the program thing. And we have wonderful programs and we have community groups and I'm not belittling any of that. And if God graces us with thousands, then I'm going to need a lot of help, but that's up to him. But until then, let's be a church that presses into the one thing. And so what we see in this Psalm 27 is David has tasted the one thing. He's experienced the one thing. He has tasted something better than life itself. And he's not going back. So everything else to David, as you'll see as we read this together in just a second, everything else is optional compared to this one thing. I actually uh, did some research this week as to what our culture would say was the number one most essential thing that they cannot live without. And I was actually surprised at how many lists and suggestions there were. And so uh, one particular one caught my attention. The uh, number one most important cannot live without thing in our culture was number one, Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Scott Campbell sent me a text and said, actually, it's probably battery, then Wi-Fi, because Wi-Fi is no good without a decent battery on your cell phone. I thought that was fun. Number two, and I can resonate with this, microwave. It's, it's amazing how life just changes for me when the microwave stops working. We've actually had that a couple of times where our microwave stopped working. And the children are like, well, what are we going to eat? And I'm thinking, well, how am I going to warm up my coffee? Because I make up coffee and then I forget about it and then I need to warm it up. And I'm drinking the same coffee two or three days later. It's wonderful. Which is why I always get a venti or a grande on a Sunday morning. It lasts me a long time. Number three was cell phone. Number four, praise the Lord, coffee. Number five, surprise me, duvet. I, that, I, duvet, really? First world problem. I'm, duvet. And then further down the list, this made me laugh, and, uh, and, I'm sh- and, and this is not something I can relate to, although I'm sure some gentlemen in the room can. Uh, it's hair straighteners. Cannot do without a hair straightener. You know you're living in the West when, right? Wi-Fi, microwave, cell phone, coffee, duvet, hair straightener. Those are our essentials. Hair straightener. So what is David saying is his essential, the one thing, the one thing that we as Christians must have above everything else. Everything else is optional if we have this one thing. Let's read Psalm 27, see if you can pick it up. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Let's just stop there just for a second. Just pick up on what David's saying here. He's saying life is exceptionally difficult for him right now. You'll read later on that his family have forsaken him and he's surrounded by an army who want to kill him. He is being chased down by his king. Everything is falling apart. Everything. And we have people in our city right now, and maybe you're one of these people as well, who you feel literally everything is falling apart. You have external pressures, just like David and his army coming against you. You have internal pressures, just like David and his family, who seem to be coming against you. That's David's situation. 
Verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord. This only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek His face, your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to desire of my foes or false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So what is it that David's confidence is placed in? Look at verse 3. It says, though an army besiege me. And then again in verse 3, though war break out against me. And then verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me. He says in verse 4, if I have this one thing, all will be well. All will be well. This is the most important thing. Yes, I have armies against me. Yes, I have people who want to kill me. Yes, I have families who are uh, forsaking me. Yes, I have accusations against me. You could apply any one of these things to our modern culture, regardless of age. Anybody who feels any pressure at all from outside or from within, David is saying, all will be well. You have to understand the, the depth of the trouble that David is in here to understand the amazing state he makes when he says this is just one thing so friends what is your one thing that if this one thing could be given to you changed tweaked altered taken away given to you what is that one thing that you would say if I had this one thing all will be well because David's one thing look at the response that David has verse 3 though an army besiege me I will not fear Verse 3, though war break out against me, he goes on to say, I will be confident. Though my father, verse 10, and mother forsake me, God will receive me. He sees answer and hope and wellness in every situation because he has made something his one thing. In verse 6, he says, My head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. He's saying, I have an essential thing. You could take everything away from me, and I will still be able to rejoice. I still will be able to sing. I still will be able to make sacrifices with shouts of joy because I have the one essential thing, the one essential thing that you have got to have. Everything else essentially is optional. Can you hear that? In fact, in verse 3 it says, Though war break out against me, I will be confident. What he's saying there is this, I will sing and I will rejoice even if you take my life away. 
even in the face of death itself, I will rejoice. You see, David presumes nothing. He doesn't see life as something that he can control. If you read David's life, you will see this tumultuous, chaotic event after event after event. He just presumes that he's controlling. If there's one thing, parents, grandparents, people who have influence over children, please, please, please do not give your kids the impression that they are in control of their future. They are not. And it is one of the greatest disservices that we can do as parents to deceive our children into believing that their choices will result always in a healthy, healthy, happy, prosperous life. Because when those things get taken away, they will blame themselves and get bitter against themselves or against God because they won't see it as fair. Whereas as parents, we don't bring them up in this kind of dour, oh, just expect the worst. Not at all. What you say is we have something better. You don't need to be in control. Why? Because we've got this one thing. Life could throw anything at you, my son. My, my love, my daughter, anything could happen. Chaos is going to come. Challenge is going to come. But it's going to be okay. Why is it going to be okay? Why is it you're going to be able to rejoice? Why is it you're going to be able to sing? Because we have this one thing. That is a way better way of parenting. Because your kids grow up strong and in faith, not believing that they hold everything. Because I've said this dozens and dozens of times from this pulpit. And many, many, many of you have experienced this. It takes one phone call, one visit to the doctor to remind you that you are not in control. So teach your kids well. Teach them God is in control and there is a better thing than control. You see, David doesn't presume anything and neither can we. We need to be a people of the one thing. So what is this essential thing, number two? Verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Okay, so Glenn, you're saying the one thing that we need is that we all need to live at Willow Park Church South. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so I don't even get a day off. Got to be in here singing every day. I mean, you might like that, Glenn, but that doesn't sound great to me. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. What is it that David's longing for? You see, he knows that he can't live in the house of the Lord because that is for the Levites and for the priests. He knows that he can't live there. So what is it that he's looking for? What he's wanting is this word dwell. Dwell in the house of the Lord so that he may, what? Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So what is it that David's longing for from the temple? Is it forgiveness? Is it community? Is it good feelings? Is it change of circumstances? Is it money? Is it answers to prayer? Is is that what, is that, so let, let me modernize this. Why do you come to church? Is it for forgiveness? Is it for community? Is it for good feelings? Is it for change of circumstances? Is it answer to your prayers? Is it because this is what you've always done? That it feels odd if you don't? That you feel this kind of guilt-driven religion that you have to go to church? Is that why you come to church? Is that why you go to God? Because David goes to gaze upon God's beauty. Let's pause and think. Do we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Because that is David's one thing. That's David's one thing, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. 
Beauty is an interesting thing. And I did a lot of reading this week on beauty. And first of all, you have to be very careful how you Google this whole topic. Just saying. Um, but I did some research about the psychology behind beauty. And you have to be careful because you can, you can make beauty so scientific that it takes away, ironically, its beauty. But beauty is something that we as humans are fascinated by. We love beautiful things. And something that you see as beautiful, I don't. And something I see as beautiful, you kind of go, oh, well, you know, because I, you know, I see Manchester United winning uh, 5-2 yesterday as a beautiful thing. As do many, uh, nearly a billion people in the world. So join in, everybody. I see this as beautiful. For some of you going, no, that's not so beautiful. In fact, I hate that. Beauty is this incredible thing that we can never, ever fulfill our appetite. We just want more and more and more of it. Whether it be a beautiful face or a beautiful car, a beautiful lake or a beautiful house, whether it be a beautiful universe or a beautiful garden. We just love beauty. Why? Why do we like this beauty? Why is it that David says that I might gaze upon God's beauty? Not God's forgiveness, not God's love, not God's glory, not God's majesty. The actual word is, I want to gaze upon the beauty of God. Why? Well, first of all, beauty creates community. What's the first thing we do? Just put yourself in this place. What's the first thing we do when we see something beautiful? We want to go and get somebody and come and show them as well. Look how incredible this is. Look, 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 look. So this is what happens in my house. I get very enthusiastic about dumb things all the time. And so my wife, we've been married for 25 years. We've known each other for almost 30 years, I guess. I, I actually have, I, I go and I kind of, Sarah, Sarah, come on, come on, look at this. And so over the years, what I've realized is that Sarah comes in and she looks at whatever it is that I'm looking at or reads whatever I'm reading. And I, I, and I want it to be, I want it to be enthusiastic with me because somehow that beauty becomes more beautiful when somebody else is enjoying it with you. But I've grown to learn that Sarah doesn't necessarily find the same things beautiful as me. So what I do is this. And it works, sadly, is I'll go, babe, babe, come, come look at this. Just, you can pretend to be enthusiastic. Just come and look. And then she'll come and she'll go, wow, and I'm happy. How sad is that? I've even tried to self-analyze myself. She's faking it and you're still happy. I don't care. So she'll go, wow, that's amazing. I'll go, you're faking it, aren't you? Yeah, okay. And then she goes and does more important things prays for me and listens to the Lord. There's something about beauty that creates community. C.S. Lewis does this beautiful writing. He says, he talks about how joy is complete as you praise something when you're with somebody. You only need to go to a movie and feel instant community because everybody is enjoying this beautiful thing together. That's why grown men, 300 pound overweight, shirtless, covered in tattoos with a beer, will watch a football game. Because they're celebrating together. There's a sense of community with praise. So why do we need church? Because gathering together and praising the beauty of God together creates this beautiful sense of community that I don't believe you can get anywhere else. When we gaze upon God together... In community, our peace and joy is complete. So I want us to be a people of the one thing, because that means that we are a people who love community. 
community groups, coming to church on a Sunday, meeting together, breakfast in the week, whatever it might look like, gazing upon the beauty of God together. Number two, beauty creates hope. Regardless of how bad life is, beauty provides an escape. You sense the beyond, don't you? When you look at something beautiful, when you hear something beautiful, you get this kind of echo of eternity that there's something bigger and more beautiful than your present circumstances. Leonard Bernstein, who's a famous composer, who's also an atheist, said this, when I listen to Beethoven's fifth, I can't help but believe and feel there's something right in the universe that will never let me down. When you gaze at beauty, you get community, but you gaze at beauty, it gives you hope that there's something better. And David saw that in God. He didn't need to look at creation. He didn't need to look at a beautiful scene or a a thing of beauty. He said, I can find that sense of hope in God himself. You can strip everything away from me. You can literally bring me to the point of death and I will still find God beautiful. I will still find hope in him because I will sense that there's something bigger at work. That I will have an echo of the eternal, a glimpse of something that's beyond. And that's a beautiful thing. Beauty also dismantles self-centeredness. You see, when we look at something beautiful, we take our mind off ourselves. We don't say, look at me. We actually get caught up with the object that we're looking at itself. And so as we place our mind and our eyes and our thoughts and our attention upon Jesus and upon God, then you become smaller. And you know what, friends? I'm saying this lovingly. That's a good thing. The smaller you are, the better. Because we have the greatest conversation, the longest conversation with anybody in the world. You do it with yourself all the time. You're constantly talking to yourself. You start replacing yourself with God. That's a good thing. So as you gaze upon the beauty of God in the temple, dwelling upon that, then you are captivated by him and it reduces you and beauty dismantles self-centeredness. And here's what happens. If we have a church... Please listen to this. If we have a group of people at the South or at Willow Park Church as a network who are captivated by the one thing, we will, number one, beauty creates community. We have beautiful community. Sarah, all Sarah will have to do is play a chord and we'll be up and like, oh my goodness, this is so good. I can feel the presence of God. Why? Because we're all enjoying his beauty together. Secondly, we'd be a community of hope. We would find hope in God and this hope would get transmitted to our community as it did this last week. And we would become smaller and less self-centered and we will start reaching out. Community, hope, reaching out. That's what we should be as a people. Nothing could take away our joy. Nothing could take away our meaning. Nothing can take away our self-worth and self-image. We could love to gather together and we could love to reach out together. We can gather and we can scatter Because we're captivated by this one thing. So the big question as I finish is this. How? How do we gaze upon this beautiful thing? How do we become a people of the one thing? How do we we become a community that we're not kind of navel-gazing, looking at me, myself, and mine, but we're actually looking at our community, looking at God. How do we get to this place? Verse 8. Listen to this. This is really interesting. Well, it's all interesting, but this is exceptionally 
prophetic on the part of David. My heart says of you, seek his face. Read that again. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Can you see what's happening there? See, David is sensing a nudge, a whisper, uh, a prompting. And that prompting is saying, come seek me. Come on. So then, the next part is David making a decision, your face, Lord, I will seek. So there's two important things there, and listen, and I say this lovingly, Christians camp out in the first one, and never, no, not never, often don't take advantage of the second one. They camp out in the, my heart says of you, seek his face, and somehow, that becomes satisfactory. That becomes, it's, that's where they find contentment. That's the talking about honey. That's the singing about honey. That's being critical that we don't taste more honey, even though we're not willing to actually taste it and do it ourselves. That's camping out on this sense that there's something more and being critical that there's not something more. We should do more of this. Yes, we should. Let's sing about it a bit more. Okay, let's sing about it. We'll talk about it. And I might even criticize and be critical about it. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Never move from there to, I'm actually going to seek him out. I'm actually going to taste the beauty. I'm actually going to do that which I say that I long for. You see, David is saying, I sense the prompting of God. And then he follows through. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. We come to church for many, many different reasons, and all of them are good. But the ultimate reason that we come to church, not the building, but the actual community of church, is to seek God and the beauty of Him. That we could gaze upon Him. That's the most loving thing that we can do for our children. Not find the best youth group or anything like that. As good as that is, the most beautiful and wonderful thing that we can do is gaze upon His beauty. We listen to His because we all have that prompting. We all have that sense. We know there's something more. We, and then you follow. Follow through. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So what does this speak to me about? First of all, it says that David is prioritizing. He says, I am going to seek this out. But then notice in verse 9, it's actually a bit of angst again. It's not like I'm going to go skipping into the temple and God is just going to present himself to me. It's going to be so wonderful and beautiful. That may happen. But there's actual work. Do not turn, there's this, Lord, do not turn your servant away in anger. You be my help. Do not reject me. There's a determination to seek and there's a determination to keep seeking. Even if it's not easy. You need to set time aside. You need to position yourself. We need to be a church where we prioritize seeking his face. You see this word gaze suggests praise. The, ga- the word gaze suggests thanking him, not just asking him. Gaze suggests silence. Just coming before him and enjoying his presence, reading his word, not having an agenda. So the first thing is we need to prioritize. Secondly, we need to be patient. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. We're not good at waiting. We want instant feelings of spirituality. 
Sometimes they come, not often. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's a fight. It's a patient seeking. It's a process. And that's tough for us as a society, but the Bible makes it a bit easier for us. Because we need to prioritize gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. We need to uh, be patient in our gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And then there are many others, but I just chose this one. We need to focus on Jesus to find the beauty of the Lord. You see, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, is the perfect expression of God himself. Listen to what John says in the first opening verses of the Gospel of John. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So that word dwelling is the same dwelling as David uses. And and it's this tabernacle, tented, lived among us. So John is saying Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. He is the one where you will find the beauty of the Lord. So if you want to see what the beauty of the Lord sounds like, look at what Jesus said. If you want to see what it looked like, look at what Jesus looked like through the Gospels. Look at how he responds. You will see the beauty of God showing himself through his son Jesus and as we gaze upon him we will see the beauty of sacrifice we'll see the beauty of love we'll see the beauty of care and compassion and strength and power only when you see the life of Jesus will you truly be able to gaze upon the beauty of God but we have something better than David you see at that time they had to go to the tabernacle Whereas the Bible says, if you have a faith in Christ, you believe in Christ, then he tabernacles and dwells in us. So that means something incredible for you who are a Christian here this morning. Not only are you buoyant in your faith that it's like you cannot be pressed down. You're always rejoicing because you have the one thing. No matter what life sends against you, you have community, you have hope, you have peace, you have joy, you have all these wonderful things. Not only that, but wherever you go... You take it with you. See, it used to be that they would have to take the tabernacle with them. You have it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, your sin and shame was placed upon him and it died with him. And by faith we believe in that. And then he imputes righteousness and new life into you and dwells in you. So that means tomorrow morning when you go to the coffee shop, you can kick open the door. In comes you and Jesus. Like Who knows what could happen in the next 10 minutes if you stepped out in faith on that? Like if we actually believe what the Bible says is going on inside of us, then our community truly will not only live among the one thing, they'll experience the one thing through you and I living that out in our community. And I truly, truly believe that if we spent, please listen, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to, make people, I don't mind conviction, I just don't want to condemn. If we spent one week, just one week, I would even go as far as saying one day, but I'll give you a week. One week, believing that wherever you go, Jesus goes. That you are empowered with hope. You are empowered with the beauty of God. You are empowered with his presence and an answer for this dying and hurting world. If you truly believe that and then stepped out in faith and spoke that, I honestly believe that this church would not know what to do with all the people within the next week or so. 
you would be stunned at what would happen. It's happened this week. I know of people in this church who have gone to complete strangers and said, you know, can I pray for you? Five minutes later, the complete stranger is tears pouring down his face, sharing his story. If we all did that, I'm not naming this person because I want to embarrass them. But I think, man, that is understanding that we just need this one thing. We could radically change our neighborhoods and our communities and our families. We could become the one thing that this community needs because Jesus became that one thing. The beauty of God himself gave him his sacrifice for you. He took the step so that we could take the step. Can you join me in that? Can we become that church? Because if we can't do that, I'm going to go and get a proper job. That's not a threat. That was more of a joke. Don't worry. Well, some of you probably want it last. I don't know. But that's what we're meant to be as a church. That's all we're meant to be. Is a people of the one thing. That we might gaze upon the beauty of God. That we could actually believe that he's empowered us to bring change and effect. That's why my heart was bursting last Sunday afternoon when I saw the church being the one thing for this hurting community at Water's Edge. And I think if we actually lived in the sense of the grace and the presence of God on a daily basis, I think we'd be telling our grandkids and great-grandkids by faith about the incredible exploits and adventures that we experienced in the early 2000s in Kelowna because a small group of a couple of hundred people at the south decided they were going to believe what the Bible said about them. Wow. That's what church is. So maybe this morning you're hearing God say three words. Just three words. It's the same words that David heard in Psalm 27. And it's seek my face. Just seek my face. Let's close our eyes.